0: It's great to be with you here on this Saturday. I'm trying to relate to the old people, you know what I'm saying? Just glad they made it here at all. Nice to be with you here at uh, Sagemont Catholic Church. We've got to start grading on a curve around here. <clears throat> no, Mary, please... Please do yourself a favor. Take, take a snooze like you usually do. <laughs> It'll be good for you. You'll feel better. <laughs> Folks, we are in James chapter 4. It's a terrible passage of scripture. So I studied it. And I was cocky. And I thought, I got this. But then I started reading it. It's really bad. I'll I'll show you why. Uh, I've been accused of being too direct. I'm like mild. Wait till you hear what James has to say. Really rough. It it was very uncomfortable, and I'm ashamed of myself because usually when I anticipate a tough passage of Scripture, I delay what I'm doing before it so that the next one lands on Chuck because then I enjoy coming to watch him sweat. But now I didn't read ahead, and so now the joke is on me. You'll see. Listen, if you're a Christian, you always are. If you have accepted Christ, it's an irreversible uh, thing. When he makes his deposit of his very spirit in your life, he doesn't withdraw it. It's not what he's about. If salvation depended upon you, you'd forfeit it. But that's the point. It doesn't. He who began a good work in us, so says the scriptures, will complete it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Eternal security is not based on any good thing dwelling in us or even bad thing. Eternal security is based on the eternal God who saved us. I got all that. On the other hand, you can truly be a Christian in every sense of the word and wayward as can be. It's possible to turn away. It's possible to rebel. It's possible to sin even in a recurring way. And that's the person James is going to address here. And since it's all of us from time to time, or to one extent or another, oh my goodness, prepare to have your toes stepped on. So here's how James starts. He talks to us about fights and quarrels. I don't know if you knew this, but we have them. We fight at home, we fight in the workplace, we have conflicts even in churches, just the way it is. So James is kind of going to challenge us. If James was here and came over to us, I'm at war, too strong a word, having some conflict with another person in the church right now. It's not that bad, but it's something. And uh, if James were here and he would say, so, Stuart, what's the cause of that? I would say, man, James, I'm glad you asked me. It's the other guy. (laughs) Let me tell you about the other guy. And I wouldn't lie, but let me just say I would present the facts in my favor. That's what I would do so that James would realize, oh, man, Stuart, it's understandable that you are at odds with that guy. He's a creep. (laughs) But then if James went to the other guy, he'd get the same stuff. The other guy would say, it's Stuart. And we would go our merry way. But James doesn't wait for that frivolous answer. He supplies the answer. Check it out. Verse 1, chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, he doesn't wait for our frivolous answer. He answers, is not the source your pleasures or desires, is another way to translate it, that wage war in your members. So here was, here's what I, I resent about this. James is not in any way concerned about who's right or who's wrong or who thinks he's right. He's not even doing that. He's just saying, here's the deal. The root cause of conflict is an impure motive in you. Now, I can shout out, but wait a second. I'm the wronged party. I'm the victim. I'm the offended party. James doesn't even even go there. He doesn't use the language of guilty. Innocent party, right, wrong, perpetrator or victim. He's just saying wherever something is in disarray relationally, you have a measure of responsibility for it. He is not saying that in some cases someone is just as really, really wronged you. But even in that case, I think James is saying you need to use it as an opportunity to check yourself out. Because even if you've been wronged by that person, the way you're talking to people about it shows that there's something wrong in you. And here's what James says is wrong in you. You have desires. You have, you have certain, you're a pleasure seeker. And if your desires are not met, if someone gets in the way, that's why you're in conflict with that person. And so James is essentially saying the root cause of external conflict is internal conflict. And James is saying use the external conflict as an opportunity for you to go inside and check yourself out. Don't worry about the other guy. What about you? Are you 100% without blame? The answer is no. And so he uses this word here. I hate this word. It's not the source, your pleasures. Here's the word in Greek. Tell me if it sounds like something. Hidonei. Hedone. Does it sound like anything? Hedonism. Hedonism, That's the word. You know what James is saying? It's your hedonistic attitude that's really behind most conflict. You think the purpose of life is for you to get your your needs satisfied, your pleasures taken care of, have your desires um, addressed, and if anyone happens to get in the way, you're in conflict. Because of unresolved internal issues, you, you're, you can't resolve outside issues. If someone is not speaking of you well, if, you, if you're not being well thought of, if you're not getting a certain position, if someone is whatever, because you're such a hedonist, that's what James is saying here. Can you see why I don't like this text at all? You know, I sit down, I'm going to read the Bible. You know, it's nice to read the Bible. It's not nice to read the Bible. I feel like James is, I feel like telling him, please don't shout so loud. Man, this really got me. Now I see why it, the text landed with me. Although I know Chuck, it applies to him more. <laughs> so I don't, the whole thing is perplexing. But anyway, it's is it, essentially James is saying unmet hedonistic desires that's really behind, you know, treat me right and think well of me and uh, be sensitive and, you know, it's unmet needs that leads to external conflict is what is what he's sort of saying here. And then it gets worse, verse 2. You lust and do not have, <clears throat> so you commit murder. Now, I am going, what in the world? How do you go from lust, a desire, uh, maybe for fame or fortune, I don't know, for someone's position, to murder But I don't think James really meant that these people who he addressed literally committed murder. But I think he is essentially saying the roots of it are there. When you think someone is in the way of you, your personal gratification, that person becomes an enemy of yours. And what do you want to do with enemies? You want to get them out of the way one way or the other. And the Bible, doesn't it in many places, essentially say, if you speak ill of a brother, that's kind of like to murder him. The Lord said this in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? 1 John also says something similar. So James is not saying you literally murder someone, but you surely could assassinate that person's character and reputation, can't you, in the eyes and minds of others? James is saying the same root of murder is found in someone who because of uh, unmet uh, needs and desires, Uh, is antagonized by someone perceived to be in the way. That same antagonism is the same root that leads to murder is kind of what's going on. And then you see that phrase, you lust and do not have. Now, this is interesting. You know what it's saying? Um, It's pointing to the futility of life lived for pleasure. Now, this is terrible because that's what everyone here is doing. I'm not ashamed to tell you... uh, it's true of me because I think you're the same as me, only worse. <laughs> I'll tell you wh- what goads us on in life. It's this this is, this is the, the mantra. Uh, I must increase pleasure and decrease pain. If you think about it, that's behind everything you and I do. Increase pleasure, decrease pain. That's hedonism. James is saying, no. What about the glory of God? Should that not enter into the picture anywhere? And in fact, a life characterized by a pursuit of pleasure and the absence of pain, James says, well, that kind of lust doesn't satisfy. You lust and do not have. It doesn't work. And if we were to be honest and go around the room, you can talk about how um, the experience of a lustful pleasure Only satisfied for a season. Sin, it only satisfies for a season. I think I told you this story. I was in the military a long time ago. I had become a Christian. In college, before that, however, I had a very close friend named Brian. We were buds. We were two single guys, unsaved guys, college guys. We did what guys do in those days use your imagination. That's what we did. I went off from college. Dears separated me from Brian. I became a Christian. I don't know what happened to him. One night in the military barracks, I get a call about two in the morning, as I recall. It was my friend Brian. He said, uh, I'm here in town. Pick me up at the bus station. I had mixed emotions. I was glad that I'll get to see my best friend who i hadn't seen in years but then i thought oh no brian has come to town he wants to resume our lifestyle but it's different for me now i'm not going to do it so i prayed i was nervous in the car i said i asked god to give me an opportunity as soon as i could to speak to him about the lord so brian he's got a backpack on and throws it in the back seat of the car sits down he says so what's new and i said to him i am He looked at me and asked for an explanation, and I had 45 minutes to share what Christ had done for me. I mean, doesn't it say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation? I was a fairly new believer then, but I remembered that verse. I couldn't find it then, but I I remembered the thought. So I shared with him what Christ had done for me. I thought Brian's going to say, well, that's nice. Now take me back to the bus station. But it wasn't anything like that. He spent a week with me in the military barracks. By the way, you're not allowed to do that. Can't have a civilian in the military barracks, but we did. He stayed for a week. Every night, I had a Bible study in my barracks room with different guys. I really didn't know much about the Bible, but I knew it was God's word, and we ought to study it. We did the best we could. We just sat around. Quite a diverse group. Unbelievable. Guys from all over the country, that's the beauty of the military. I mean, you are thrust together with people who are not like you, and you better learn to get along and respect each other. Or you're going to have a rough time. Anyway, we had unbelievably diverse group. It was wonderful. And we would sit on the floor, and we had bunk, military bunk beds. You know, you get in the bunk bed, and everyone would open a Bible. And we, we were just reading. Brian stayed for those Bible studies for a whole week. Towards the end of the week, he told me, he said, you know, I am not happy at all. He said, I am really tired of the party lifestyle I've been living for years. Now I want to tell you something, how shocking that was to me. I knew this guy as my best friend for years, and we never had a serious conversation. Isn't that crazy? Never did. He, knew, he really knew little about me and, and I little about him. What do we think? What do we feel about things? The whole nature of the relationship was party time. You get together. You do. St- you mean and guys are like that today? Guys hunt. Guys fish. Guys, guys watch sporting events. Guys don't really talk. <laughs> Women do. It's amazing to me. <laughs> Did I tell you this story? Listen to this one. Uh, I used to uh, do some things with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. You ever hear of it? Really good group. And we had a big conference at some place here in Texas. Ken Hatfield, who was the football coach at Rice um, and at the Air Force Academy, he was a man's man, strong believer. He was the camp chaplain, and then uh, each of us had a role with a small group of coaches. It was coaches, high school and college coaches. It was a coaches camp. So I had a group of 10 coaches, guys, and my wife had a group of 10 coaches, uh, either uh, female coaches or Ladies married to these coaches. Hatfield gave us an assignment. In your group, get to know each other. Go around the circle. Introduce each other. Talk about how long you've been with FCA and where do you coach. That's easy, right? So we did that. I, I said, well, coach, why don't you start in my group? I didn't know who the guy was. Just tell us who you are, how long you've been with FCA, and uh, where do you coach. But I coach football at such and such place. you know. High By the way, speaking of high school athletes, see, see that gal right there? That's Amanda Imes, and she is a Texas State powerlifting high school champion right there. So don't mess around. You didn't expect this. You didn't expect. But she's, just to put a downer on it, she's from Fort Worth. (laughs) She's the niece of these two wonderful people. Jeff's her uncle. And here she is. She's visiting with us. She's going off to college. She's got a powerlifting uh, scholarship. She's a strong believer And I know the Lord's going to make great use of you there in this next phase of your life. And I hope you enjoy this class. (laughs) So um, anyway, so I do my thing and my wife does her thing. Then my wife and I come back together. She said to me, how did your group go? I said, really great. And uh, I said to her, how did your group go? And she said, oh, really good. Uh, I found out two of the coaches in your group had vasectomies. I'm not making this up. I said to her, you what? How did you find that out? The C- Coach Hatfield told us you asked three things. What's your name? How long have you been with FCA? Where did you coach? How did you get this? Oh, no, we didn't do that. We just, We just got together, and one thing led to another. One thing led to another? That is but it really showed me the difference between men and women. We did our thing. We communicated. We're done in like five minutes. we got nothing to say. We thought we were really close. We bonded. So this was a different thing. So I know my friend Brian for years and years. He knows nothing about me. I know nothing about him. Guys hunt. They fish. They do sports. Whatever the deal is, guys, guys are stupid. What could I tell you? Their best friend could be a total stranger to him. them. But then... <laughs> nice. First amen from this dear lady and years of being here at the church. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> so so uh, that's what he tells me. He said, uh, I feel empty inside. That's what Brian told me. And uh, I, I did not see him except the Lord at that time. He surely was then open. But here's my point. When I studied this text, I said, oh, man, that's Brian. And anybody, you lust and do not have. He was a New York State wrestling champion. He was a professional drummer. He was a real good-looking guy. Gals would hang all over him. You would think he'd have it together. You lust and do not have. He had pleasure for a season. His real needs were not met. Brian me you we validate scripture we lust and do not have you're envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you know what james says you have ungodly envy for someone else's position or place or whatever and you cannot have it so you fight and quarrel you know what james says you have external conflict because you're having internal conflict you have hedonistic desires that cannot be righteously satisfied. And that just spills over into human relations. And then, James had the gall to say this to me. You do not have because you do not ask. Oh Man, he snuck up on me there. I didn't see that coming. You talk about stepping on toes. You do not have. These desires, these unmet needs... You do not have because you do not ask. Oh, my goodness. And I thought about that, and isn't that true? Why don't we ask? I'll tell you why we don't ask. Because we each have a desire to be self-sufficient. Now, I know you said, that's not true. I'm a Christian. So am I. We love the Lord Jesus. We fully attribute our salvation to him and him alone. We worship him. We respect him. But we do not want to depend on him. He's Lord. We don't like it. Because if he's Lord, and if I have to pray to him for something, I run the risk of having him say no. Or, this is even worse, wait. Well, why should I do that when I can bring about something without making recourse to him? Remember, we seek pleasure and avoid pain. If I can find a way to increase pleasure and avoid pain, and I don't have to involve Jesus in this, ah, I'm free. I'm the master of my own destiny. Admit it, folks. That's what you want. That's what I want. We're as stupid as sheep who want to get away from the shepherd, and then we get eaten by wolves. So that's what James is saying here. You don't have because you don't ask. So we don't ask because we want to be self-sufficient. And the second reason in conflict why we do everything but pray is that person who we are at odds with angered us. And we don't want to let go of our anger because we think that person deserves it. So we're not praying for that person. I got a guy here. I'm at odds with him. And uh, I think he's wrong. I'm sure he feels the same way. Everything I've gone through. I haven't said a word to God about him. But all you got to do is ask me and I'll tell you everything. Isn't that terrible? I will tell you about the guy, but I won't talk to God about the guy. You do not have peace because you do not ask. You do not have reconciliation because you do not ask. Uh, Can you see why I don't like this passage of scripture? I really thought I was going to try to come up with something that you guys needed to hear this really hit me. Well, I've begun to pray for the man. Uh, uh, Not to, oh, God, shake him up so that he could get it together and admit how wrong he is and come groveling and begging for my forgiveness. And if it's a good day, I may give it to him. That's not the right prayer. The real prayer is, oh, God, he's my brother. Thank you for saving him just like you saved me. No, God, it's a terrible testimony when two of your kids are at odds with one another and I'm just as responsible as he is because it takes two to tangle. No, God, I forgive him. Would you give him grace to forgive me? No, God, would you help us to get together? No, God, I want to tell you something. The root of this stuff is puny and petty. You died for both of us. We say our father. You don't like it when your kids are at odds with one another. It's not about him. It's not about me. It's about what you want. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That verse really hit me. I said, God, that's your word. So I started to pray. You don't have because you do not ask. All right. And then the text goes on. It really gets worse. Verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So first, James confronts the problem of no prayer. Now he confronts the problem of selfish prayer. You you don't get what you're asking for because you're asking in the wrong way. Look, <clears throat> some people say you have to utter the prayer of, of faith if you want to get an answer, and I agree with that. You have to pray in faith. But what does that mean, faith? Some people will say faith means... Um, you ask God for something specific as you should. And then you keep repeating it, repeating it. You act as if he already gave it to you. You confess it. You speak it into existence. You, your words have as much creative power as God does. You avoid any what's called negative confession. In other words, it's faith in your faith. That's not the, that's not the faith the Bible speaks of. The Bible doesn't encourage faith necessarily in a particular outcome. It encourages faith in the Father to do what's best. Here's the prayer of faith. Oh, God, I really would like that job. I'm asking you for that specific job. I need a job. I'd like that one. Oh, God, I'm really asking for you to give me that job. Nevertheless, your will be done. That's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is faith in almighty God to do its best. What if the father says, you know, that relationship you yearn for is really not good for you? What if the father says that job you think is good for you? It's really not in your best interest. How about this one? What if the father says, you know, that physical lamp, uh, uh, a disease, that affliction, that hardship that you're asking me to heal you of and take away? <sighs> What if I tell you I can get more done with you going through it? That's the prayer in faith. It's not, the, it's not prayer and it's, for God to do a specific thing. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. It's this. Father, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking for. But I don't have the big picture. I don't know what's best. Thy will be done. I think Jesus prayed that, didn't he? He looked into a cup. Of suffering, He said, Father, please, is there a way I don't have to drink it? You know what the father said? No, you must drink it. And the Lord said, thy will be done. Well, why should it be worse with us? I was pastor of a church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know about that? It's Juma Baptist Church. One of them great, great people. And uh, so I was preaching one Sunday. And then there's like a receiving, you know, people go by and you shake their hands. You know, people say stuff. I know it's not true. People say, hey, that was really a good sermon. I'll tell you why I know it's not true. Because half of the people were sleeping through it. Mm -hmm. Although then I thought maybe that's what they meant. It was a great sermon. They've had a a lot of uh, hard time getting to sleep, and then I helped them too. That was great. Maybe that's what they meant. So anyway, there's this one gal. uh, She's coming through the line. I knew her family situation. So in the line, I simply said to her, hey, how's your mom? Because I knew her mom was hospitalized. She was being treated for cancer. I said, how's your mom? And the young gal said, she's well. She's perfectly well. I said, oh, that is wonderful. So you mean she's not in the hospital anymore? She said, oh, no, no, she's still in the hospital. So I couldn't understand what was going on. I said, did I get this wrong? Didn't your mom have have cancer oh yeah yeah but she's completely healed to which i said oh praise god that is marvelous when did you find this out and uh well no no she's she's still in the hospital but i'm believing god for it believing god i said oh i see what you mean in fact she said i wish you would not use the word cancer anymore because you're speaking negatively into this you see what was going on here well that poor gal was under so much pressure to persuade herself not to have feelings, not to have concerns, and really not to trust God. I'm just going to exert this power, this power, this power. I won't let any negative thoughts come into my mind. I'll only see my mom healed, healed, healed. Though she's not healed, I'll do this, and then I will successfully twist God's arm and obligate him to give me what I want. See, that's not the prayer of faith. That's faith in your faith. Here's the prayer of faith. Oh, God, I ask you to heal my mother. And I'll tell you why I do it, because you can heal, Uh, and you do heal. You spoke things into existence. You created the human body in the power of your word, Jehovah Rapha, God who heals. I'm looking to you to heal my mom. However, oh God, though I have no doubt in your ability and will to heal, you may have healing of a different kind in mind. Maybe you want to use this to accentuate our dependence on you. Maybe you want to use it to bring my mother and I even closer. Together, we've been at odds with one another. And maybe you want to use this uh, as an opportunity for us to show people we love you and trust you even through this. Maybe, oh God, those are your objectives. And maybe they are even greater than mine. So, oh, God, I'm asking for my mother's healing. I don't doubt your ability to do it. On the other hand, you may choose not to yet for a greater good. And in faith, I trust you. That's the prayer in faith. Now, James is saying you can utter a whole bunch of words and you're not going to get it because you're not praying that way. You're not praying for God's redemptive purposes. You're not praying for him to be glorified through a, a, a situation. You're not trusting God's plan and will. You're seeking to impose yours on him. You're essentially saying, I will not stop. I will not rest. I will not have peace until you give me what I want. That's not the prayer of faith. That's unfaith, lack of faith. So the text goes on. Now this gets really bad. Uh, I really was praying for the rapture before (laughs) today, but apparently that's not happening. Um, Verse four, this is what God says to his kids like you and me, who though we be in covenant with him, go astray. You adulteress says, Uh, you see, um, again, I've been, told you're too direct you gotta watch your words and stuff like that which is true man James makes me look like some mamby pamby whatever he just spits it out maybe it's a Jewish thing because James was Jewish too you adulteresses. Now, you know what that implies? There's a covenant like unto marriage, and one party violates it by taking on another partner and thus earns the title of adulterer or adulteresses. This is a reference to the fact that you and I are in a covenant like a marital relationship with the Almighty God. It's called the new covenant. In fact, Isaiah 54 says, refers, says this, your husband, who is your maker, the Lord of hosts. Are we not referred to as the bride of Christ? so you can see when members of the bride of christ look to other people or things for the satisfaction our husband wants to give us that's spiritual adultery wow this is strong do you not know that friendship with the world what's friendship with the world it means living to find satisfaction of your needs and desires and pleasures apart from god You make yourself a friend of the world. Uh, And so friendship with the world, you know what that is? The opposite is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is strong language. And it gets even worse. Verse 5, do you not think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Sometimes we act like adulterers, and all along, God is jealous of the Spirit. It's his Spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. It's as if God's saying, I not only created you, I redeemed you, I own you, I bought you with a price, and when you go astray and enter into partnership as a harlot with other partners, I jealously desire the Spirit. It's my Spirit who I deposited in you. You see how strong this is? Now, I can say some things about verse 5. It's probably one of the hardest verses in all of the Bible. And I'll just briefly tell you why. You see where James uh, says, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And then he quotes Scripture. We can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. Where do you get it? The best conclusion is he doesn't intend to quote a specific verse of Scripture as much as a thought which emerges from the Old Testament. And then there's a second big problem. I'll just lay this out so you can't accuse me of skipping over the hard stuff, but we will not resolve it. If you have the King James Version or the NIV, your translation reads, The Spirit which he has made to dwell in us lusts with envy. But if you have the New American Standard or the ESV, it reads entirely differently. It reads, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Which is it? So I studied for hours. Uh, I can read the Greek New Testament. I'm not boasting about it. I'm just telling you that's what you have to do if you want to get out of seminary. And I wanted to get out. So (laughs) I studied this stuff. But it kind of comes in handy. So I'm studying it. And here's the dilemma. Recourse to the original Greek does not resolve this discrepancy. Linguistically, the Greek can give rise to both of these very different renderings. I think the preferred rendering is the one that says, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Not based on language, but based on context. The prior verse spoke about adulteresses and here. Our heavenly husband is saying, my jealousy is aroused. I jealously desire the spirit which has been made to dwell in you. Now, this, leads, this could lead to a discussion that could take hours and hours. It will not be resolved here. I don't want to shake your faith. I just want to tell you uh, that um, sometimes the scripture really, really, really requires diligent study. So you have to be, this is what really bothers me about young guys who quickly go into the ministry with no training. God called me to preach. Yeah, but one of the signs of the calling is equipping. How'd you get equipped? What are you going to preach? You know, you're preaching to God's people. You better preach God's word. You better be able to handle God's word. Now, how can you handle it if you don't have some equipping? But you see, guys, they're just running into the ministry. Well, what are the people going to get? Not necessarily untruth, but they're going to get pablum. That's what they're going to get. I would be really, really kind of careful who you listen to, so to speak. Okay, but anyway, so that's verse 5. Now, look, I'm sick to my stomach. I'm reading these first five verses. I'm saying, I'm giving up in the Christian life. I am so far from this. I am not like Christ. I don't do any of these things. I'm the guy who argues with people uh, if they, if they um, are stifling the satisfaction of my selfish carnal needs. I'm the guy who talks about those people to other people. I'm the guy who doesn't pray about... I, I mean, I'm going, oh, my goodness. I'm not showing up to that church on Sunday. I'm not going to... You know, let's play a tape. But then, then, I'm glad I didn't give up. Then I get the six, perhaps, most marvelous words in all of the Bible in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Ah, so I could come today. I put on my pink shirt, and here we go. I was telling Mary, that's what happens when you dress in the dark. I didn't know this was (laughs) pink, but here, it's pink. I thought it was something else. But anyway, this is unbelievable. Listen, if you're a Christian who's committed recurring sin, you get to a point where you say, It's over for me and God. I can't stop. I don't want to stop. I'll never stop. I'm in trouble. But He gives a greater grace. Oh, get up, press on. There's hope. Our father's arms remain extended. Come home, prodigal son, prodigal daughter, because I give a greater grace. What do you mean greater grace? When you got saved, he gave a great grace. How else did you get saved? Now that you're saved and gone astray, you need a greater grace. You're a saved one on the run from the Savior. You need a greater grace. He gave the great grace in salvation. He can give a greater grace that moves you to repentance. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, but what do you have to do to get in on it? You have to do something. To look at, look at. Hey Barry, I'm sorry. Go ahead, brother. Oh. Really great, Barry. Did you hear what Barry said? He he, he said in Romans, he re, he's reflecting on a verse that says, Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's it, brother. Same thing. Greater grace, greater than all our... We sing this, don't we? Grace greater than all our sin. It's never, I'm through with you. It's over. Once Jesus redeemed you, he stays with you, though you drift from him. You can't find your way back. You don't even have a desire. Your heart is cold. Now, I know this. I have been here. You can't even honestly look God in the eye and say, I'm sorry, because you're not sure you want to give it up, but he gives a greater grace. But what do I have to do to get in on it? Is there anything? Yeah. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I, the recurring sinner, have to humble myself and say this, God, I cannot stop. I need help. I'm not as strong, as spiritual, as godly, as capable, as self-sufficient as I am persuading myself. No. Oh, God, I need greater grace. I am weak, you are strong. And he gives it to the humble one. And so the gift of amazing grace is enjoyed by anyone willing to submit to it. Anyone. And so... The text goes on now to give very practical steps in repentance. Now, here you'll see what repentance really is. Here's the first, submit, therefore, to God. Now, if you've been in the military, you'll understand this. This is a military term. It simply means to rank yourself under. So whenever you have a superior officer in the military, you are submitting to that officer. You see him coming, you're the one who salutes him first. First. That's the way it is. You rank yourself under. That's what this is saying. Rank yourself under Almighty God. This is the first step in repentance. You know what this is saying? Who do you think you are? You have free will and you can sin if you want to. But do you know the consequences? You are insubordinate to The one with the highest rank. Submit to God. Just do it. Second step, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Now, you can't do this in your own strength. You do not want to go head to to head with the devil. Who do you think you are? He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more committed to your destruction than you you know. But you can resist. What does it mean to resist? It means to say no to devilish things. That's all. There's the point of temptation. No, Satan, I will not. You can't do it alone, but you can. You can when you're the housing of the Holy Spirit. Step one, submit to God. Step two, resist the devil. Step three in verse eight, draw near to God. You know what he'll do? He'll draw near to you. You're the person who's committed recurring sin. You're a Christian. You know better. You may even have taught Bible study and all that kind of stuff. You've drifted into sin. You don't think God will ever draw near to you. Yes, he will. It's his desire to be in relationship. He's your father. He loves being a father. He's been doing it throughout history. He's good at it. Therefore, he invites us, draw near to me, I'll draw near. How do you draw near to God? Don't make it something so complicated. It means spiritual discipline. Now, uh, if you go to the gym, uh, you know what it takes. You see people huffing and puffing. You see someone's lifting Amanda, here we go. Forgive me for not knowing what I'm talking about. But you see someone doing bench presses, which is Amanda's strength, and and the friend who's spotting says, come on, one more. Give me one more. You're dying. It's nothing. It's no fun. It's a physical discipline. Well, in order to draw near to God, there are certain spiritual disciplines. Here's one. Come to church. Something happens in a church atmosphere. Jesus is praised, uplifted. You look around at others who are living the Christian life, trying to live the Christian life. There's an accountability, the discipline of going to church. Second, read God's word and reflect on it. And that's not coming easy to anybody. You just done got to do it. It's like going to the gym. Just do it. Here's another discipline, prayer. We don't do it. You know Why? Non-praying is dependence on self. Praying is dependence on God. We don't want to depend on God. Prayer says, I depend on you. That's a discipline. Sacrifice. I know we're saved by grace, and and maybe we overdo it because the Christian life calls for some sacrifice. Sacrifice means deliberately doing things that involve a sacrifice of time or money or resources. Just do it. Service. Get involved in serving to the glory of God. Whether you like it or not, just do it. And for me, this discipline really helps. I'm not that good at it, but I stick with it because I need it. Memorizing scripture. I need it with me at the point of temptation. I need it with me at the end of the day when I can't get to sleep. I go through scripture. So this is how you draw near to God. And what do you get in return? He draws near to you. Here's the next step. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's a reference to Old Testament priests. That's what we are now, folks, under the New Covenant. We're all believer priests. In the Old Testament, a select group of priests, before they offered sacrifice, had to wash their hands. It's a way of saying, I will not show respect to you, Almighty God, by rendering an offering with unclean hands. In other words, you don't come before God when there's unconfessed sin. Deal with it. Confess it, repent, wash your hands. Not only that, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here are... Five steps to serious repentance. Submit to God. Resist Satan. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. And a final step. This is unbelievable. Step six in verse nine. Be miserable. That's in the Bible. That's not going to preach, folks. Can you see these people on TV? Here's my word from God for you today. Be miserable. (laughs) That's what it says. And mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You know why? If you're seriously repentant of a recurring sin, that's what will be the case. You know, uh, you see little kids. I saw this the other day with my grandkids. My grandson did something to my granddaughter and and, uh, so their mom... Said, uh, said to the grandson, tell your sister you're sorry. He said, sorry. Not exactly maybe the evidence of true repentance. <laughs> Misery, mourning, weeping. That sounds like some, someone just died. If a loved one has passed, you've experienced these things. If you're a believer who's in the pattern of recurring sin, you're grieving death also. It feels like death. It's the death of close fellowship with the God who loves you most. its uh, I mean, you mourn over how you've offended him, how you've disgraced his name, and how you've hurt others. For instance, if it's sexual sin, uh, sometimes it's with a non-believer. Oh, my goodness, you pretty much caused that person to stumble. You really need to be miserable over it. True repentance means you mourn, you grieve. You don't stay with it forever, remember, because he has grace greater than all our sin. But you get in touch. This means you accept responsibility. You don't say you're the guy who had an affair with someone because your wife is not meeting your needs. You don't say she doesn't make me happy. You say I sinned against you, O God. If you're the woman having an affair with someone cuz your husband's not meeting your emotional needs, you don't say I did it cuz he's not meeting my emotional needs, though that may be true. You said I did it because I don't I can't trust you to meet my needs, my heavenly husband. You say I've been an adulterer, not to my husband, to you. And you go through these. You now submit to God. You accept his grace greater than all your sin. You resist the devil. And next time the guy calls, you say no. that's resisting the devil don't make it complicated you draw near to God you open that Bible you open your mouth in prayer you haven't in a long time do it now you humble yourself and accept God's greater grace and then you get in touch with what your course of action has brought upon you is it good what's good what's worked you say no I've lost time. I've lost opportunities. I haven't felt comfortable with God. I haven't been able to share my faith because I know I'm such a hypocrite. You get in touch with the misery of a season of sin. You mourn it. You weep. Then you do verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, knowing he will exalt you. You don't stay with that grief unduly. Neither does a person who's lost lost a loved one. The intensity of the grief should subside over time. I know it wells up from time to time. But you learn to manage that grief, and you can learn to manage the grief of sin, which has separated. Get over it. Deal with it. Why? Humble yourself. Don't... Dare think I'm the world's greatest sinner. No, you're not. You're an ordinary sinner. You're probably not that good at it even. Don't give yourself that credit. So you humble yourself. And here's what helps me quite a lot. You humble yourself, first of all, knowing God will exalt you. There's hope for you. He'll raise you up. But here's the thing that really helps me. Do this in the presence of the Lord. So where can you go where God ain't? No. Is he there when the lights go out? Yeah. There's no such thing as a private sin. You know, two consenting adults in a motel room. No one knows. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. It's one of the things that makes God God. It's called omnipresence. He's everywhere. David wrote a whole psalm about it, Psalm 139. You can read it. You know what he says? Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? You know what the conclusion he comes to? Nowhere. This should not scare you. This should give you hope. This should remind you, oh, God, you care so much about me. I'm never apart from you. Your eye is always upon me. And right at the point of temptation, please remember the presence of Jesus. He's there. This should help it seems to me, curve our appetite for sin. Okay, you know what these 10 verses are? It's nothing but a call to radical discipleship. And it showed me how far from it I am. And it made me miserable to such an extent I wanted to share it with you. (laughs) And then I think only a caring father would offer this to us because he cares how we live. I had a dad... He never hurt me physically or anything like that. It was worse. He was there, but not there. My dad knew nothing about me, never attended any activity, didn't know. My dad didn't know what school I went to when I went to college. He was an alcoholic and a gambler, and he was caught up in all of his stuff. I would have been easier if he just beat the snot out of me. I can handle that. Instead, he was there, but not there. You know what that does to a kid? It does bad stuff to a kid. Let me just tell you that. And uh, now I have a heavenly father (laughs) whose presence is constant. That doesn't scare me. That blesses me. I have the perfect dad I never had. So did you. Well, that's the one we want to be like. That's the one who messes with us, steps on our toes through a guy like James, only because he loves us. When the kid is spanked, a kid knows he's loved. When a, when a kid's parent says no, a kid knows he's loved. When a parent says do whatever you want to do, if it feels good, do it, that kid will grow up feeling unloved. Isn't that interesting? That's how, that's how it happens. So, folks, we're loved by our God who will not let us go. He proved it by suffering really immensely for us. Of course, then he rose up from death and he's with us at all times. He's not scrutinizing. He's he's not criticizing. He's just saying, I want to do life together with you. Why do you want to do it without me? That's all he's saying. Humble yourself, therefore, in the presence of the Lord. Be humbled. The greatest one, the creator, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has no beginning or end, is your daddy. And you will never be alone. Humble yourself under the presence of this almighty God. And this exalted one will exalt you. That's the payoff for true repentance. It's much better than lust, which does not satisfy. That's a call to radical discipleship. That's saying, don't just be converted. That's a call for radical discipleship. That says, be salt and light, stand out, find your satisfaction in Jesus and none other that I shared this with you, I'm memorizing this verse and I'm memorizing it because it's not me. I want it to be. Psalm seventy-three twenty-five: Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. When I read it, I said, ah, that's not me. I got desires for all kinds of stuff. It's slavery. Every one of those things becomes a, a cruel taskmaster. So I cry out to God, oh, God, I want to get to the point where I find my satisfaction in you and you alone. That's true freedom. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides that, I desire nothing on earth. That's true satisfaction. Now, I've never put God to that test because I have found satisfaction apart from him. So have you. This is a call to real faith, trust. Jesus to meet needs, not just the forgiveness of sin, that would be enough. Oh no, the satisfaction of the longings of the heart. <clears throat> Trust Jesus to meet those needs. Be a radical follower. That's what a disciple is. Lord Jesus, we bow before you gladly because we respect you and love you and know you're high and lift it up, and now we've got to act like it. That's what James has told us. Live out your life in light of the greatness of your God, your Savior, in light of his holiness, in light of his presence, in light of his care and concern for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the God way more than of the second chance. Thank you for your greater grace, grace greater than all our sin. I pray, O oh God, for myself and anyone in this room who's in this category. That we would humble ourselves, look to you for satisfaction of our needs, confess our sin, turn from it, follow the steps you so clearly outlined through James here. Tough ones, disciplines, and yet they work. Oh God, I pray you would make our sinful adventures grievous, miserable, so that we see what happens when we drift from you. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for not punishing us, but for allowing us the consequences of our own bad choices as an impetus to cause us to draw near to you fresh again. Thank you for casting all our sins when confessed and repented of behind your back. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for fresh grace, fresh mercy. May there be not one person here today who doesn't humble themselves And accept that you are the God of grace and God of mercy through Jesus, your son. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you later today.